Alrighty, so we're going to start a little bit of a, a side series uh, with the podcast today. Um, we've got some episodes that uh, I conducted a few years ago interviewing some of the top guys in the Australian reptile hobby. Um, so the first episode today, we've got one of my personal favourites, uh, which was talking to Dr. Gavin Bedford, in particularly about the old Pally pythons, which is an absolute dream snake of mine uh, and a species that I absolutely love. Uh, as well as a few other bits and pieces about Gavin's history in the reptile industry uh, as well. Hopefully you enjoy. Obviously, it's just going to be uh, a slightly younger version of myself conducting these interviews. Um, so you will notice the voice will be slightly higher pitched than what it is today. Uh, but that's one of those things that uh, comes with the process of aging. Hey? Um, so hopefully you enjoy something a little bit different. There's, I think there's about 10 maybe give or take episodes here. And that we'll be slowly uploading over time uh, in conjunction with the, the normal shows with myself and Dane as well. Alrighty, thanks guys. Hope you enjoy. There we go. Well, that was a fun experience. Yeah, gotta love Facebook technical difficulties. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. so now that Apparently you're here. Apparently, my, my son's struggling. Yeah, yeah, you go. Josh. Um... Apparently, my son is struggling to access a couple of things on um, on the internet as well. So we think it's actually a problem with our internet area because the yeah, phone's yeah. perfect. Well, everything that you said, yeah. the phone did. Everything that you were talking about when, when I was trying to access it live a computer, nothing was coming up. So yeah, let's get the show on the road. G'day, buddy. How are All you? All right. Yeah, good. How are you? <laughs> good mate. Um, so, all right. To be a, a pine. That's all right. So today we'll be chatting with Dr. Gavin Bedford, um, who is based up in the Northern Territory. Uh, Gavin is the leading keeper and you could and breeder of the Owen Pally pythons. Um, he's also kept rare species such as pygmy freshwater crocs. Um, he was part of the NT operations for Snake Ranch, which we'll be talking about later on. Um, which granted him some of the opportunities to work with albino olive pythons, which is another thing that we'll talk about uh, down the track. Um, so let's get into it. How did the reptile obsession for you begin? Um, it began on a golf course, apparently. Uh, I was a bit young to remember it, but uh, my dad uh, used to be the prime carer because mum had a job and dad didn't, so off he'd go to golf. And, uh, and he'd take me with him. And uh, apparently when I was three, he's hit one into the, into the rough up at a golf course in Adelaide. And I followed him into the rough, at, uh, barely able to walk, I guess, at three. You know, you're not, you're not that mobile. Um, and while he's looking for a, a golf ball, I've lifted up a, a piece of um, cardboard and there was a, a young Eastern Brown under it. So I've, I've picked it up and, uh, and thought, yeah, this is pretty cool. And what, what became even cooler was um, apparently, I don't remember it, but my dad saying, put it down, Gavin. And Gavin said, no. Uh, I just didn't want to let it go. I thought it was pretty good. And, um, and all his golfing buddies crowded around me and they're all saying, let it go. And there's this little, uh, little eastern brown snake in between a couple of little fat fingers and, uh, and it's trying to bite everybody except me. So I guess that was the, uh, the first encounter and uh, and and the love of reptiles stem from that uh, i try not to do yeah, that yeah. With eastern browns these days 
<laughs> that's certainly a different story to most of the other people. So there you go. Um, Owen Pally's, um, give us an, an overview on the project and how you got involved with it and all that sort of thing. Go straight for the goodies, don't you? I'm like, straight <laughs> off the bat, let's go for the goodies. All right. Uh, I guess it stands back a long time. Uh, Grant, husband who's watching at the moment, would have, would have dealt with, or he did deal with the Owen Pellies at the, at the Territory Wildlife Park. Uh, and, and he and I used to have a chat, you know, I've known Grant for a long time, and he and I used to have a, a, a chat about this, this massive olive python, carpet python that was described by Gow in 77 as being a little bit different, but confined to the West Arnhem Escarpment region up here. And, uh, and we always said, you know, we've got to get some in captivity because there's a, there's a, uh, there's a decline in animals across the world and, you know, we end up getting on a real downer as animal people um, and, and plant people as well, I guess. Um, you know, biota is going down. The only thing that seems to be going up is human population. And, uh, and if animal populations are going down and, and the research around Owen Pelly's wasn't on Owen Pelly's per se, but it was on a lot of the animals that Owen Pelly's would eat, like small mammals, and uh, and they were finding huge declines. You know, ninety percent collapse of small mammal um, communities in that in that sandstone country, and it stands to reason that if you've got a predator that was in abundance, uh, you know, a prey species that was in abundance, then probably the predators are as common as they're going to be, and when that prey species collapse collapses the, then over time the predator in this case Owen Pelly will start declining too now you don't see it straight away because a well-fed python as most of the viewers will know can live for at least one and sometimes up to three years without needing to eat um, so if you can go three years without needing to eat you've got a big decline in in the rat population um, you don't see a decline in the pythons for, for quite some time. Uh, and, and also, if, a, if the prey species collapse, so that you go from 100 down to somewhere around 10, the pythons would substitute from eating the rats to eating something else, like birds or other lizards or whatever. You know, lizards or whatever. So... so you, there, there would be a, a lag time between when you see uh, the research on small mammals showing the decline to when you see um, pelly pythons go, go, start going down. So Grant and I spent a lot of time talking. I spoke with a lot of other people, including our former, former rangers of Kakadu, and we said we've got to put some in captivity. So we went to Parks and Wildlife and said, um, other than the ones at the Territory Wildlife Park, let's, let's see if we can't get some into captivity. And, and of course, the answer to everything that even looks like a smart idea is no, uh, especially when you're dealing with a, a, a governmental bureaucracy. I mean, and if I was in government, of course I'm not, and I'm probably not the right character type that would go in government, but if I was in government, I would make sure that every answer I gave was no too. You know, um, can I do this? No. Because as soon as I say yes, all of a sudden I'm opening myself up to having to do something, one, uh, I'm opening myself up to a failure because what if this guy does something and he gets it wrong? Well, then I'm I'm accountable. So basically, government departments were prepared to say no straight away, and uh, and and so as a 
a private person that's not part of the academic scene anymore or not part of a, a government department, I spent a lot of time trying to work out how we could get that no changed to a yes. And, and I think it's a process that we need to do with a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of things out there. You know, there's 1,300 species of reptile in Australia, and we probably keep, what, 5% of them? So there's probably a lot of other animals that are, are going to go the way of the dodo, um, and it's going to take people like me or like you or like a whole heap of people listening to put their hand up and say, let's do something. And, and you know, mostly, I'm starting to get old and grumpy, uh, so I'm probably the last person that, uh, that, that should be putting their hand up. I think it should go to young fellas like yourself. And, and so, you know, we, 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 we put it to the, uh, to the Territory Wildlife Park. They said no. We put it to Parks, and, Parks Australia out in Kakadu. They said no. Uh, but then there was a caveat in the, uh, in the Parks Australian policy that said you need Aboriginal um, people to back your, your process. But it was a catch-22 because it said you needed Aboriginal people to back what you wanted to do, but then you weren't allowed to go to Aboriginal people in the first place. You actually had to go through Parks Australia. And so I went through Parks Australia and they'd said no. So what's the other option? I went and visited some Aboriginal friends of mine and said, so what do you think about that? And they said, Gaff, we know nothing about this animal. In fact, you know, um, there are so many Aboriginal people that have spent, you know, they are... 45,000 years of ancestral heritage in that area and they've never seen an Owen Pelly python. So it makes sense that they should be beneficiaries of this project as well, which, which of course they are. So when I got it out there to the people of Western Arnhem Land, you know, in Kakadu and a little bit, I wanted to do this. All of a sudden, attitudes changed because the Aboriginal people wanted me to do this. And in actual fact, over the four years that I was looking for animals, I would get people in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'd be out collecting and this Aboriginal kid would come up to me and go, hey, you're that funny guy that wanted that snake, don't you? And I'd go, uh, yeah, how do you know me? And they'd go, oh, you know, your story get around, you know. So basically, they, they knew who I was. They still know who I am. And, and everything that I said I'd do with this project, I've done. Um, including making sure that Aboriginal people benefit from it. And, and so I, I've got a good rapport with, with the people out there. And there's a couple of other animals out there, like the, you know, the, the Arnhem skink, uh, which is sort of blue-tongue-sized, uh, but is, like the Owen Pelly, going to be told, no, you're not allowed to have it, until someone as silly as me goes and plays that game again. So, yeah. So we put them in captivity. Aboriginal people are really happy. I think even Parks and Wildlife now are really happy, but by golly, it was a big struggle in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how many did you originally collect in the end? I had a permit for eight, but I only ever collected six. Um, after we caught okay. six, one, I couldn't afford it. I was paying an awful lot of money per animal because the Aboriginal people needed to know that I was serious about it, that I was committed to it, and that they were the beneficiaries. So I paid uh, an awful lot uh, per animal to do it, and I just couldn't afford eight. We actually found eight, but two of them are still out there. Um, and of those, of those eight, it was almost like the Goldilocks story. You had, um, you had the big pair, which are a girl that's five metres and a boy that's about four, you had the middle pair, which was a four-metre girl and a three-metre boy. And then you had the baby pair. And the, uh, the baby pair were 
the first one I caught was the, the, the small female, and she was oh, what I know now to be about a two-and-a-half-year-old and maybe just on 1.8 metres. And, uh, and the baby boy was one that, uh, that uh, uh, Gordon Canning found on the road near Gumbelania or, or Ongpeli, and that was a hatchling. It was an absolute hatchling uh, that we know now. You know, back, back quite a few years ago now, probably five years ago, we didn't know how old anything was or how big everything was meant to be. So, yeah. So what I, yeah. what I believe is I've got the largest Ongpeli or the longest Ongpeli um, ever recorded. Uh, yeah, Gao had that one. Gao had one that was 4.89 or 92 or something like that. This is just a fraction over five meters. Big stone. Yeah. yeah. How would you? How do you go about housing something that kind of size? Uh, all the adults are uh, in in big aviaries, and, yeah. and that's probably the, the easiest way to deal with them. But they're a really long, skinny snake. They're like nothing anybody's ever played with. And, and I know Tim Faulkner at the Australian Reptile Park has got three in his office. And, and every time he rings me up, he goes, Gav, Gav, they're just so different to everything that we know. Oh, my God, they're just, they're, you know, yeah, fantastic guy, Tim, and really smart operator. And, uh, and he's dealt with pretty much every python species, as have I. And we just go, they are just so different to everything you know. They're not, they're not a handling animal. It, it, maybe, you know, I've, I've bred a few now. I haven't got one that I could just say, watch this, I'll pick it up. And it'll drape over your hands like a diamond python or um, even a, a fairly, um, fairly easy to keep uh, rough scale or bread You know, they really are a very different animal. And, and they just erupt. They'll be coiled up in a in a in a loose coil. They never really look pretty when they're coiled. You know, you get a green tree python on a on a branch, or a, a central carpet python on a branch or on the ground. They just look pretty. These things never yeah. look pretty. It's like it's like an old rope that you've just grabbed and thrown on the ground, and you go, oh, oh, geez, they don't coil very well. Anyway, when when they are on, um, sort of moderately coiled up, if you touch them, they just explode. It's just bang, wow. Sorry, didn't mean to do that. Um, and, and like a scrubby, they just watch you. They, they know when I'm within, oh, I guess, 10 to 20 metres of their aviaries, and if I've got someone with me, they will back off. They'll go and hide. They won't, they won't stick around. If I'm by myself, they're used to me, they're fine. And when you hear people say stuff like this, you start going, yeah, sure, mate. Yeah, 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 having us on. Um, I've done it time and time again, and I know that's what I'm dealing with. And, and you know, I've been banging on about stressing reptiles for at least the last 20 years um, because I've seen it, you know, work with it at uni. I've done a lot of things with reptiles. And, and it's only now that most people are starting to realise that, you know, this cranky old bugger from Darwin isn't quite as silly as he seems. You know, every now and again he gets something right. And, and most people are now working out that stress is a really um, big determinant of behaviours in, in a lot of things. And, and Owen Pelly's, it is, it is everything. They really are a high-stress animal. And whereas a scrubby um, may have a defence mechanism that says, yeah, okay, I don't like you, I'm going to bite you, and I'm, I'm a bit stressed that you're there, these things just go backwards. They just avoid you. Uh, in fact, of all the animals that I've dealt with, I've had one 
I've got one now that tries to bite me. Of course, it's four and a half metres long and it sits on a perch at head height, so I tend to try and avoid that. Um, but I've only been bitten by one animal, that was three weeks ago, by a hatchling. Um, I went to, went, went to pick it up and it bit me and I went, you guys don't bite, what's going on? Um, since then I've fed it a few times, it, it, I've actually picked a rat out of its cage when it didn't eat it, hasn't even tried to bite, so just a, a bit of a stress reaction. I think. <laughs> so yeah, very, very different animal. The colour change, oh my god, the colour change. Talking about a colour change or even taking a photo of it just doesn't do it justice. Um, you'll have seen photos in books where Owen oh, Pelly's a badly coiled under a, a, a tree in Kakadu and they look drab brown during the day. That uh, A five metre snake that goes from drab brown through to ghostly silver with purple markings is mind-blowing at night. Mm. Just mind-blowing. Why they go that yeah. sort of colour, I've got no idea. It seems to show up pretty well, but you know, maybe it blends in with some of the bark on trees or some of the markings on, on the rocks out there. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, and um, yeah. you're talking about hatchlings. How many so far have you bred? 66. Wow. wow. Okay. Yeah, from a number of different years and a number of different clutches. So, yeah, let me, let me just hang you around so that that's a bit better. And... I'm not um, killing how many head, my head. how many of those um what's the like the survival rate i guess do they all go full full term um i get or... everything's been trial and error josh and and the one thing that uh, you know, most herps will do is they'll get a pair of something and and i'm sure everybody gets a pair of something um yeah when you get wild caught animals it's a lottery and I've you know, dealt with a lot of wild caught animals and I know it's a lottery. Um, that's why I wanted at least three pair and possibly four if I could have afforded it. And what happened was the absolutely most beautiful snake that we caught was, a, was the three and a half to four metre male here, did not have a blemish, did not have a scar, was absolutely perfect in every way physically to look at and unfortunately he was shooting blanks now how do you know that well the only way you know that is when you put it over a female and she ends up with a bung clutch and even when that happens a lot of people a lot of hurts go oh the female i must have done something wrong with the female but what what happened for me was the next year i put the the middle boy over this big girl and got a perfect clutch 100 percent. then the next year the third year I put the, the perfect boy back over the big girl again and got duds. So I know he is a failure. And he is the reason that I would say to anybody that's getting any reptile, um, whether it's wild caught or not, you need more than one pair. You need two yeah. pair. And at, the, at, at you know, just a huge insurance policy is to get three pair. Yeah. And it sounds counterintuitive because everybody wants one olive python male to go over 17 olive python females. I know that's an exaggeration, but you know, they, they want them to go over multiple females um, because that maximizes their chances and blah, blah, blah. It's all about money. No, it's not. It's about producing happy, healthy, um, well-adjusted uh, offspring. And you do that with multiple males. And, uh, and you might find that you know, of the three males that you bought, only one works, only one is suitable. So, you know, it really pays to have a few. So, yeah. 
And, um, and um, care-wise, obviously you keep the adults outside, but as far as hatchies go, what is it like? Can you compare it to anything, I guess, how they're kept? Oh, they're kept like we kept pretty much everything at, at Snake Ranch. Uh, most of them are in, in, in tubs. I'll, I'll just go and grab one. Just, just talk, yeah. talk amongst yourselves. Big shout out to my, to my mate Steve down in Adelaide um, using some of his racks. Of course, everybody does. Um, this is one of this year's hatchlings, right? So it hatches out at about 80 centimetres to a metre. Um, yeah. This particular animal hasn't eaten since it, since it hatched. Um, yeah. And you can see it's, it's probably not looking like it needs a feed. Uh, it's well hydrated. It does everything it's supposed to. And I figure sooner or later, it's got to try and eat something. And I, I tend to start them off with rats if I possibly can, but a lot of them won't take rats to start with. They'll take a quail. Um, yeah. When they take a quail, I try and, you know, just try and get a few feeds into them like that. And then I'll put ba baby rats with baby quails so the smell goes across. And, and nine times out of ten, you get the switch over from quails to rats quite quickly. Having said that, yeah. from the very first clutch that I've got, the, the very first snake that I caught, her young were bird eaters no matter what I did. They just would not switch over. Even now, I'll probably get um, a couple of feeds of a rat and then they'll say, no, I'm not eating a rat again. And then I go back to a quail and then gradually work back to having a rat again. Um, you know, it is, they are a little bit tricky to get feeding. Most people want to feed everything all the time. There's as you can see, I'll sort of stretch this thing out. You can see it, it's long and skinny, um, more like a tree snake. And what I've found yeah. recently is they really don't like big meals, especially um, if it's a bird. So if they, well, this one's too small to eat quails, but the, uh, decent sized quails, but some of the ones from the first year would get given uh, adult quails, they'll eat three. Uh, they're, they're tough to digest because of the feathers, and so two of them will get uh, spat out, and uh, that makes it uh, a, a bit tough to get body weight on them. And of course, rats are always the, the best way to go. Yeah, I'll put put that one put that one back. Talk about yeah. yourself again, Josh. I'll be, I'll be back. Yeah, no worries. There we go, the old pallies. So this is one of one of last year's, yeah. And uh, and, and as you can see, it's it's growing quite well. And, and this thing yeah. ate rats right from day one. You know, just yeah. a be beautiful animal, easy to keep. And uh, and you can see it just they just don't stop. You know, mm. it, it just will not sit there. Yeah. Well, they are. But you can see the nice colours on it. I don't know if you can see it's in its night pajamas. Yeah. Not not quite fully lit up yet, but getting there. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, what are your hopes with the Owen Pallies? Where do you want it to go down the track? Oh, look, my hope at the moment is some multi-millionaire will say, Gav, 
it is a couple of mil, you give them all to me and uh, and never have one again and, and I'll look after them and I'd go, thank you very much. I mean, my job was only ever to put them into captivity, to make sure that this thing doesn't go extinct, that Aboriginal people have an insurance policy, that they get benefit from 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 the uh, the whole project, and that you know people like you and and everybody listening has the opportunity. They might not want it. I mean, it, it's a five metre snake when it's big, but uh, yeah, not everybody is going to want a five metre snake. But the options there, what it does, yeah. uh, and the and the big thing that uh, that I'm working on at the moment is it reduces the idea that people need to go and poach it. I don't know if you saw in the uh, Darwin paper yesterday, there was a guy done for uh, taxidermy. You know, he was, he was the mastermind behind uh, an international taxidermy business f from Australia, from Darwin. Now, he possibly, and I'm not, not going to say he was or wasn't, but he possibly could have been you know, getting things like this and sending them to mates overseas or, or doing what, whatever, you know, you, you just don't know. Um, mm. If there is a captive population, it reduces the stress on a wild population because you just don't need to go and do it. As, as I've already said, a wild animal is an incredibly hard thing to deal with. I, I mean, the, the adults that I've got, even now, I have to trick them into eating stuff that we like to have pythons eating. So it's, it's just not simple. Um, so... My job is almost done. I yeah. guess I'd really like them overseas. I'd really like them to be able to be kept in every state in Australia. And yeah, that's, mm. that's a bit of a problem at the moment. I hear moves are afoot for a couple of states, the big states, uh, which is good. Um, but basically when I first put this idea to Parks and Wildlife, there was an enforcement, um, an enforcement meeting with every enforcement agency in Australia and every enforcement agency in national parks throughout Australia said, we like this project because it's got DNA with every animal. We know who they are. It's, per it's the perfect project. Uh, and it's been done really well. And it's for all the right reasons. And we support this project. And we will make it so that uh, this animal is allowed into our state. Well, the very day that I actually had offspring that I was happy to, to sell, uh, New South Wales put an embargo on being able to import them. So that shows how much they really wanted to support the project, doesn't it? Um, you know, just little silly things like that uh, could have could have been prevented, but unfortunately they weren't. So, so again, we're, we're playing that game again. You know, the answer is no until you can convince them of yes. And, yeah. and you know, again, that's 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 your job. That's and and having a public forum like this. Um, is a great way to, to make stupidities like that um, become public, become known, and then people know how to fight it. And I don't know if you'll remember, I mean, there's an awful lot of um, uh, herpetological amnesia, I tend to call it, in Australia, because what people did 10 years ago, everybody's forgotten about by now because everybody's only interested in now. But about eight or ten years ago, uh, Greg Miles and I were trying to put together a, a group of people that would fight things like this at the national level because we don't have a national body. You know, native animals, native animals right across the board. You know, a lot of people would like to keep a native animal. We've been brainwashed for 200 years since we came from, from England and Europe that dogs and cats are what we have to keep. 
Um, mm. There's a lot of people like myself that are seven generations Australian that say, well, hang on, I'm seven generations Australian. Why do I want to keep a dog or a cat? Well, I do. I like a dog, but, you know, cat lovers are, uh, are equally um, in, in the same boat. If you have to like native animals, bad luck, buddy, you jump through as many hoops as we can throw at you. If you want a dog or a cat or a goldfish, go for your life. We don't care. Yeah. I'll just throw this one away, Josh. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I mean, put back. <laughs> it's starting to get a little bit restless. So I'll be back. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So if we can get them legally overseas, um, and yeah. there's, there's been a couple of people that have advocated for it um, badly. Uh, you know, I think one of them was one with a criminal record recently was, was trying to hit the Minister for the Environment up to, to send animals overseas because it did a lot of good things. Um, unfortunately, when you've actually got a criminal record, the first thing the Minister would say was, well, you're a criminal, why would I let you do it? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's got to be approached in a, in, in a way that's proper. Now, there's a couple of people, uh, a couple of very astute lawyer ladies who have written uh, a lot about the idea of exporting native wildlife legally and with feedback for governments and feedbacks for the taxation department and all that sort of stuff. Um, the government acknowledges it, understands it and agrees with it. Unfortunately, it's not expedient for ministers to say yes because then it's a vote loser for them. And so they're less likely to, to do anything unless they're actually pushed into it. And let's face it, it's a fairly small industry area. It's not like the Adani coal mine. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a small industry area. So, yep. But, you know, little bit by little bit, you know, Aboriginal people get their, get their land back because uh, they, they've lived on it for tens of thousands of years, and they say, well, we're not going anywhere, and our offspring aren't going anywhere, and our offspring, our offspring aren't going anywhere, so sooner or later, a government has to come and talk to us. And I think that's pretty much how we have to play it too. Um, my generation has, has had a crack and failed. You know, your generation comes along and says, tap, 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 how about we allow certain things to happen? And what's your reasoning behind not allowing it? And, you know, over time we yeah. end up um, chipping away. We end up with people that are lawyers that want to keep native animals and, and they yeah. help fight the fight. So, yeah. Didn't want to get political. I thought this was going to be a fun talk. <laughs> um, so how many other places have Owen Pallies at the moment? Uh, there's a couple that have got them off me. Not many, though. Um, three others. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, Tim, Tim, Tim the Australia Reptile Park, you know about, and, and you know, the, yeah. the other two are, two are just private guys. Um, yep. But you know, I do have a number for sale. If if uh, you know, <laughs> the sales plug people. Um, if you, if you are interested in Owen Pellies, then they are there are some for sale. They come with certificates. They're all DNA um, checked, and uh, and the whole process is. Fantastic. Um, money goes back to the traditional owners, and I think that's incredibly important. You know, not not just for this project; it's important for every project. And 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 I, I keep harping on about it, and, and there'll be people that just completely switch off with this. That's fine. Switch off. The people that are listening, 
if we work in the way that Aboriginal people want to work with the resources that they've got that we want, then they tend to say, oh, well, you did that well, we'll allow you to do other stuff. In the past, uh, the Western culture has gone, well, we need that mine there, like Jabaluka or uh, Ranger or Uranium mine, we'll just put that there um, and you don't really matter. And I don't know about you, but if someone's going to put a mine in my backyard um, just because they can without even asking me, the second time they, when they do come and ask, I'm going to say no. And I think it's pretty much within their right to do the same thing. So we've just got to, we've just got to work with people uh, in a way that they're happy to work with. And, and, and the one thing that I haven't mentioned that I'm excited about, and I hope most of Australia is excited about, and I know my Aboriginal partners will be, is the animals that I've got, the adults, are going to go back and die on country. That is part of what they believe. You know, their belief is, I'm born here, I live here, I die here. My remains are part of that whole um, you know, ethos of my country. Uh, and so we will put the animals back and, and it will probably be, probably be after this breeding season. So I'll have one more breeding season and, and, and luckily my wife is, isn't into podcasts so she's never going to hear that all the money that we spent getting these animals, we're actually going to give them back. We're not asking for our money back, we're giving them back. And if Western society is really smart, We'll put transmitters in it. We'll find some kid, and hopefully there's some kid watching that, that uh, by kid I mean adult that's doing a PhD in something, um, puts a, uh, put transmitters in these animals that I've got and let them go back where they came. Uh, mm. And if we let them go where they came from, my guess is, and you know, I worked on pythons for eight years um, at, at an academic level, if we put them back where they came from, their mind map will tell them where they used to be, what they used to do. Obviously, the the little hatchling won't, uh, and that's now a three and a half metre snake, so he'll find his own way, or maybe he won't. You know, when I was working on carpet pythons in the botanic gardens, I kept getting pythons from rangers that would bring them into me, so I'd put transmitters in and put them in the botanic gardens or at government house, and they would die. They would die for stupid reasons. They'd get run over. They'd get eaten by Aboriginal people. They'd get you know, killed by dogs, whatever. They would do dumb things because their mind map wasn't for that area. It was for somewhere else. They'd grown up somewhere else. And I always liken it. You, know, you hear of these relocation stories. Oh, how clever am I? I pat myself on the back because I relocated 800 eastern brown snakes. You don't know if they actually survived. And all the research that I did showed that they don't. Um, we did it on western brown snakes in central Australia where, and we did it with carpet pythons up here. They're all dead. And I liken it to you getting picked up and dropped in the middle of Jakarta without your phone, without your wallet, without your car keys, without being able to speak the language, know the area, uh, or even know how to deal with the basics like where do I find water in the next hour or two hours. Um, you know, you'll be relying on the goodwill of Jakartan, you know, Jakartans or people in Jakarta to, to take you in and say, oh, you, you, you poor white fella from Australia, you're, uh, you've got no idea, do you? And that's what we do to animals. We just dump them and, and hope like hell that they're going to survive. And somehow we think that just because it's a snake, it will. My research shows that it does.
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That doesn't mean I'm anti-wild care. You know, I'm just telling you the facts, people. Not, uh, not yeah. trying to voice an opinion on what you do. Yeah. Um, all right. So, do you, I'll leave. I'll give you a question now. Um, do you want to go to talking about Croc Cove or the Pygmy Freshwater Crocs? I guess the, the, the Pygmy Freshwater Crocs are part of Croc Cove. Yeah. They, they started because I was working on Bullo River Station, just well, catching stuff on Bullo River Station, mostly barra, yeah. and, uh, and kept coming across a whole heap of different critters that I thought were pretty cool. And I came across a, a pool along, I think, I got a feeling I was with Grant Husband, who's actually watching tonight, so I'll probably text in and tell me how great he was. Um, he, uh, he and I kept coming across these little crocs that run about 70 centimetres. And I said to, to, to Grant, I'm pretty sure the first time, these are little crocs. These don't grow big. You know, we're not seeing big freshies. Uh, and, and we found oh, no, 10 or 20 of them and they were in pristine water. You know, I'm on a table tennis table at the moment. The water was, the, the, each of the streams were about as wide as the table tennis table, maybe three quarters of a metre deep and crystal clear. You know, there was no, no sediment. And there were no big, there were no big predators there either. Um, there were barramundi in this stream, but fairly infrequent. There were sooty grunter. There were a few, a few reptiles, uh, like water goannas roaming around, but no salties. Now, when you got to the end of this stream, and again, it's on, it's on flat country, so salties could be there. Salties could be there eating these little freshies if they wanted to, but they weren't. Uh, and when you got to the end of this stream, it went into a creek, and right at the creek mouth, was a three metre salty. So they weren't far away. Um, so yeah, yeah, we, we recognise them as different. We now, we now know, uh, a mate of mine, Bill Stewart in, uh, in WA, he and I spent a lot of time looking at, at different river streams in the, the Kimberley, uh, east through the west, and Bill more so to me than me in the west. And we found them in five different river systems, these little crops. They just don't grow big. You don't have to go far until you find normal freshies. So what's the difference? Um, you know, there's Graham Webb, who worked on the pygmy freshies in Arnhem Land, uh, said, oh, you know, that freshies that um, you know, don't grow big because they're stunted by their habitat. And I... I seriously doubt that. I think they are something different. Um, and the ones in the West seem to be smaller than, one, than the ones in Arnhem Land. Uh, a big male for us was about 1.1 metre. A big mm. female is about 90 centimetres. So they're tiny. They really are tiny. Yeah, yeah. And, and their whole social structure is very different too. When, when I was uh, catching them, I was up on, on high country uh, and I slept there a couple of nights on a rock, as you do, with a, without a pillow and without a blanket, just in the middle of nowhere. And, jeez, uh, I sound tough. I'm not really I'm a complete wuss, but, um, you know, we were up on this, I was up on this high country, and, um, and all night I, I got kept awake two nights in a row because each of these crops is calling to each other, you know, oh, oh, 
you know, you hear that all night and then you'd hear splash, splash, splash and then, oh, back to calling. And I kept going, there's something weird going on here. And it took me a while to work it out. But what happens is these things on this high country are in pools and pools aren't joined. You know, there might be a little triple between them. Uh, in most cases, there wasn't. And the pools will, will stagger downhill. When you look at normal freshies, they're actually found in a billabong or a river system, and they can see each other. So they don't need to talk. I'm guessing they do occasionally, but they don't need to talk because they can see it. There's a, a social structure built on, on um, uh, over and covert aggression because they can see each other. But these little freshies, because they're in staggered pools and there's normally one to, one to a pool, or two to a pool, and then nothing for a couple of pools up, um, they can't see each other, so they've got to talk. And, uh, and the splashing was where one male would decide that he liked a girl a couple of pools down, which was also occupied by another boy. They'd go down, they'd have a wrestle, and uh, he'd decide that he'd come off second best, so he'd go back to his, his pool overnight. So there's, there's some really neat stuff happening both behaviourally and, and obviously morphologically with these animals to suggest that they're not, they're not freshies. As we know, but um, you know. Greater, greater uh, brains than mine are at work and they tend to suggest that they are. You know, Adam Britton uh, took, took this particular project off me um, and, uh, and has been working with these pygmy crocs. I'm not sure that he's done that much, but he seems to be the guru. Uh, yeah, and then so catching catching crocs at at, uh, at Bullo, um, we uh, I think I was working for Rick Shine at the time, two thousand and four. We started catching these little crocs, put some in captivity just to see what they would do. Um, about two thousand seven, no, no, it was two. No, it would have been two thousand five. Um, I thought I, I needed a job working with Rick Shine on toads and snakes um, finished and there was a, a big photo in the paper that uh, that they were going to put in a $33 million uh, big crocodile exhibit for Darwin in the, in the middle of the main street and I thought well that'd be a good idea um, so I went and had a chat with them and they said oh yeah a good a good reptile display would go quite well with our crocs. As it turns out, most people are impressed by a five metre croc. Most people are marginally more impressed with five five metre crocs. But once you've seen a croc or five, you've seen a croc or five, you know, you, <laughs> there's no increasing marginal utility after about five. And so people get bored. and. Most of Croc Cove is big crocodile pens, and yes, they're impressive, and yes, you can go down in the, uh, the cage of death, and uh, that's all great, but um, it only holds people attention, people's attention for so, so long. My display, uh, which, which I put in, was uh, what I believed to be, and I kept talking about, and no one actually contradicted me, the largest display of Australian reptiles in the world. And it was great, because I got to choose what went in it, because it was my display. And, uh, and for the first five years, it was like wonder world. It was just brilliant. I had backing from Parks and Wildlife to go and get stuff for whatever I happened to want. And so a number of animals that we bred um, that are very hard to keep in captivity uh, were first bred because I had Croc Cove. And the, um, 
Varanus Glaudi, the Kimberley Rock Monitor, was one of them. Just uh, probably my favourite, uh, my favourite Varanid, one of my favourite reptiles, uh, and just because they've got so much personality. But other things that I've bred were you know, black palm rock goannas, mm. pig-nosed turtles. We, you know, we, we, we bred lots of stuff. It was quite, quite an exciting time. And, uh, and so Croc Cove became this, uh, this beautiful place where all my animals were kept and I had people looking after them and I get to play with them. Uh, man, what more can you ask for? That's just, yeah. that's just heaven. Uh, yeah. Yeah, nice. Nice. And uh, we, we, did, we did produce a, uh, a bit of a, a uh, brochure on, uh, on Croc Cove, which sort of explained all about all the different crocs. And, uh, and you can see there, uh, hopefully that shows up okay. Um, you can see there that I was, the t over the time that I was with Croc Cove, I was the, the face of Reptile One. Uh, luckily, they, they saw the ur in their ways and they moved from a grumpy old bugger like me to someone young and quite good looking in Mr. Critter Cam himself. Um, Peter Birch and uh, Peter, that's the only compliment I'm ever going to pay you, mate. You know that. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I'm yep. sure Pete's doing, Pete's doing a great job, you know, raising the profile of reptiles in captivity, which is what we started talking about. That's yep. good. So um, with Croc Cove, what was your official title, I guess? Oh, it was whatever I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I owned all the reptiles. So I just made it look pretty spiffy by calling myself a curator. I didn't. I had to look up the meaning of the word, so you know that was fine. But um, yeah, I was a curator around times there. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, 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 I tend to like looking forward rather than backwards. I, I look back on that time. Yeah, it was ten years. Actually, it was eleven years. And I go, wow, that was uh, that was amazing. But what's next? And and you know, most people do that. They they tend to look back. Um, it's only when you get into your 70s you say, wasn't I clever? I did that. No, I've never thought myself clever. Um, I, just, I just think, oh, yeah, that's another chapter that we've dealt with. And, and, and more recently, um, uh, October last year, probably the most stressful time in my life, I put up a YouTube video that said that I was having to get out of Croc Cove. And, and I know a number of people watching at the moment got to see that video, suckers, um, got to see that video, and they, they saw that I was completely stressed. Because at the time I had 300 reptiles in my house, in two rooms in my house, and some, you know, a two-meter parenti and and uh, some of the some of the big animals that I had um, take up an awful lot of cave space. And when you've only got a couple of little rooms to put them in, I was particularly worried about their welfare. I was really struggling to work out what I was going to do. Um, in the end, Crocosaurus uh, Cove worked out that they needed those animals back more than I needed them. So they paid me out. Um, that would have been preferable to start with because they wouldn't have had to move. But they've got them all back there and, and uh, they're on display and that's great. So I've moved on. But while I was moving animals out of Croc Cove, I had a number of people say, well, why don't you put them into a new display somewhere else? And uh, just recently I, I went over to North Queensland and spoke with a few people that are particularly interested in a really big display of Australian reptiles. And so I guess there's scope for me to do it again. 
Um, yeah. uh, I'm a little bit scarred still from what happened at Croc Cove at the end, but mm. I'm also excited by the idea that maybe maybe some of the viewers might want to be part of it. Maybe some of the viewers might want to be you know, silent investors or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing to put up a really dedicated purpose-built um, display, having Australia's largest display of Australian reptiles again, would take two to three million bucks. But, you know, amongst a whole heap of investors, that's not a lot of money. And, uh, and I think there's huge scope in the tourism of North Queensland to recoup that uh, and then and a lot more. So just putting it out there, it might happen. Um, if, if it's of interest, PM me and we'll talk. Yeah, mm, I think, interesting. I think looking forward's a good way to go. Yeah, I think I yeah I think that's a great idea as well. Actually, that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So we mentioned before uh, how you were part of the Snake Ranch Northern Territory operation. Um, how did that happen, and what was your role there? What what kind of things did you get to play with? Well, Snake Ranch was actually my idea. Um, yep. I, you know, we're, we're talking back in the early 2000s when a lot of reptiles were very hard to get and were in high demand. And yep. I, went, I went to Parks and Wildlife up here and I said, would you support the idea of wild caught harvest of founder animals? so that we can breed them for the pet trade. And they just about broke my legs, making sure I didn't get out of the office without a commitment from them, because uh, they were incredibly supportive of it. What was happening at that time, and uh, judging by what was in the news uh, yesterday afternoon, is still happening, but there's a, still a, a, you know, a, a lot of poaching going on. Whenever there's money involved, human, human nature says, I've got to be in on this money. And back then, you know, green tree pythons or albino olive pythons, you can go and get a an albino olive python, but um, they were worth an awful lot of money. And so mm. it wasn't beyond people to go and just go on a road trip and catch them. Or in the case of uh, some of the very rare stuff, find someone that wanted to get a gun and go and steal them. You know, it, you know a mate of mine mm. had his green tree pythons stolen at gunpoint. Um, there's mm. horror stories like that uh, right through our uh, past 25 years of our history of involvement in reptiles. It seems to have calmed down a little bit now, but you know, as I say, yesterday on the news was someone that you know I've seen on Facebook posts for the last couple of years getting done for you know some stupidity, and uh, and so I thought the snake ranch was a way that we could legitimately breed animals for the pet trade, such that people didn't have to go and steal them. And yeah, yeah. as I said right from the start, captive bred animals are just the way to go. If you're catch, catching wild caught stuff, thinking that you're going make to you, make yourself rich, you're just kidding yourself. So yeah, captive bred's yeah. the way to go. And so I got to, uh, to go catching stuff again. We, we went catching womers and blackheads and central carpet pythons. And, and, and the good thing about a, a lot of animals um, that we did get, uh, womers were a bit different, but the, the ones that I've just mentioned there and a, and a whole heap more, uh, are caught on call-outs in Darwin, Catherine and mm. Alice Springs. 
So the people that were catching these animals on call-outs in people's homes were relocating them to us. Uh, we were paying for them, of course, but they were relocating them to us. And, and that made it quite a neat story because, as uh, I mentioned a while back, anything that's relocated tends to die. So if you're actually making a use of it, it's, it's beneficial all round. You know, it's sort of a win-win. Um, uh, and, you know, having said that, I, in the last podcast I did with Steve and, and Adrian, I pointed out that there's a block of dirt that's 35,000 hectares that's just been bulldozed. And I went mm. to Parks and Wildlife and said, let me take whatever I want off it. The person that owns it is quite happy, happy for me and, and Phil Mangin to go onto that block and get whatever we like. And we'll pay him for it. Um, so he makes a couple of bucks. And Parks and Wildlife were absolutely adamant that that wasn't going to happen. So again, that's another one that we're really struggling with. If you look at the, the, the land clearing that's happening all around Australia, but particularly Queensland and some, some places in WA as well as the Northern Territory, uh, there's a whole heap of animals that, and plants that die that could be a resource used somewhere else. Mm. You know, Keynesian economics says that uh, a, a capitalist system will redistribute resources according to you know, what money goes to it. And that will happen right up until a government says, well, no, we don't want it to happen. So then there's that artificial barrier. So it's going to take people like yourself and others listening to say, well, if he's bulldozing 35,000 hectares, which is 70,000 acres, and there's one spotted tree goanna to every acre, that's 70,000 spotted tree goannas that are going to die mm. needlessly. Um, you know, maybe there's a, an export opportunity. Maybe there's a a, um, a pet trade industry that can be born from getting animals off that land, or or orchids, or whatever cycads. I don't know. I'm just I'm just spitballing with you. But you know, there's an awful lot of things that can can be utilised as a resource, as a valuable resource that we otherwise just bulldoze, put under a bulldozer, yeah. and it's gone. So yeah. let's, let's try and change so, the paradigm. Um, Going back to the whole snake wrench stuff, so what yep. sort of animals, um, more specifically, what sort of, I guess, random morphs or different genes did you get to play with while you were there? Random morphs. Oh, my God. 2004, random morphs. I, I, I am the first breeder of morphs in Australia with the albino olive. Um, and when I bred them, I couldn't sell them. No one wanted them. Who wants a yucky white snake? That's disgusting. Why would I have that? Times have changed a bit, haven't they? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I really struggled with that. And when we first started Snake Ranch, again, you've got to remember, all reptiles were scarce. No one could mm. just walk, in, walk up to someone and say, hey, you know, if you've got any children's pythons for sale, it just didn't happen. Uh, there were probably a dozen good breeders in Australia that bred whatever their, their specific interest was uh, in. But other than that, uh, reptiles were quite hard to get. So morphs were um, very much in its infancy. And, and by golly, I sound like a geriatric now. Um, John and I found some animals that were really spectacular. One, one of the ones that really comes to uh, that I... 
I managed to get were the small uh, black-headed pythons. They only grow 1.2 to 1.4 metres, fairly small. There's some in captivity now, but what we found, they don't breed. You just cannot breed them. They are mongrels, absolute mongrels in captivity. Uh, so whilst a few people have still got them, uh, they really don't breed them very often, so they don't come up that often. And the one that, the one that John got, that he, was, he was incredibly proud of, was a uh, a Waima in Western Australia that was significantly different to everything else that we were catching, uh, and that became a founder animal. With with morphs, I think uh, we were given a black blue tongue. We bought a couple of the white blue tongues. We bred them, a couple of the uh, striped diamond pythons, which we could never reproduce. Um, the Obviously, albino olive pythons. And then just as we were uh, probably two and a half years into, into Snake Ranch, uh, there was a, an, a post on somewhere. It wasn't Facebook. That didn't exist. Uh, it was on somewhere that some kid had bred two white uh, spotted pythons. And he'd thrown them in the bin. And did anybody want them? And uh, and I quickly got onto John that morning. Uh, no, someone, I think, uh, made him on Pete. Got onto me, said, "Have you seen this?" And I sent the the, the link to to John. And John went straight round this kid's place and bought for some exorbitant amount of money and and time and effort. This uh, there was only one at this stage um, white Mac, which ended up being ribald Rodney, which was one of those freaky animals that would mate with your arm if you put it in a, in, down next to it. So we kind of got lucky with that and ribald Rodney mated with a whole heap of things. Uh, we ended up getting the black princess, which was a, a black carpet python. Um, there's a whole heap of, there's a, a whole heap of animals that I call supermodels. Owen Pelly's, uh, wild caught Owen Pelly's especially, are one of them. Albino olive pythons were as well. Uh, a lot of these are called supermodels because you look at them and they look amazing. If you interact with them, if you try and feed them, they throw it up. Everything you do with them suggests do not touch. No, you don't want us. I'm a one-off. You don't get any progeny. We don't want to breed. We don't want to do anything. And, and John and I got a number of those animals. We'd look at them. We'd go, these are amazing. But for some reason, they just will not do what we want them to do. We've got a few to breed, but, but not as many as we would like. So talking about morphs, that, that was about it. And, you know, they're still around now, but, oh, my God, you know, what Joe Ball's done with, with um, blue tongues, uh, you know, John and I could uh, only ever dream about. You know, it, it wouldn't have been in our wildest dreams, some of the things he was doing. Um, some of the, the, the black-headed pythons that, uh, that, that Troy and Denver did, Again, John and I could only imagine, you know. So, yeah, it, it was a different time, and uh, yeah, very different. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I guess now we'll move on to some more general uh, questions. Um, how, uh, how many species do you reckon you've roughly worked with over the years? Two hundred. Two hundred Australian, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always hard to know because um, working at an academic capacity, uh, we would get 
20 different species of gecko in a weekend and do uh, you know resp respiratory work on them and then take them back where they came from and go and get 20 different skinks or whatever so yeah I, rough guess would be 200 probably more yeah, but, yeah. and um, um, you mentioned your uh, academic history with um, reptiles do you want to give us some more insight into that what sort of a course and what uh, further studies did you do I'm an economist by trade, so my first degree is in economics. Um, yeah. But the good thing is, it, economics, economics um, formula worked perfectly for ecology, and uh, and so when I went to, in, into ecophysiology, it was easy to to work out ecological um, yeah, population dynamics or whatever uh, using economic formula. Exactly the same. My degree, my my three uh, postgraduate degrees are in ecophysiology, which is using uh, physiological mechanisms to determine the ecology. So it's a little bit, little bit. I like to say it's a lot harder than ecology because ecology is um, like an arts degree. Jeez, they're going to love me for that. I'm so sorry, people, but doing. Uh, ecophysiology, you're looking at the, the physiology, so how it breathes, heart rate, um, blood flow, how water turnover, a whole heap of different uh, parameters that, that, uh, that then you use in a ground treating way. So I would put transmitters in animals and let them go, follow them, follow them around to work out their home range, to work out, uh, you know, spatially where they exist uh, or survive and, and then you know, put all those factors together so it's not just a case of I put a transmitter in and I followed it around there's a, there's a lot more to it um, I did that with uh, five species of territory python uh, the two in the center were uh, central carpet python and simpsons pythons and then the three up here were water pythons carpet pythons and uh, and children's pythons and and, you know, I did 33 trips by myself in my little Suzuki down to Alice Springs over four years catching snakes. So I sort of know the highway a little bit and caught a few things, you know, got lots of photos of different things on the road as I'm going up and down. Um, got different people helping me in, in, different, in different places. And, and probably one of the, one of the sorry, two things that I'll t uh, talk about in terms of the results. There's fog dam. Everybody's heard of fog dam. You've heard of fog dam? Yeah. You know, yeah. You know where fog dam is? I'm sure a lot of people listening know where fog dam is. Fog dam has been researched. Uh, the recent reptiles at fog dam have been researched to probably as good as any reptiles in Australia that we know by Rick Shine, uh, Tom Madsen, and, and more by the most amazing guy I've ever met, a guy called Greg Brown, Dr. Greg Brown. He is just a living dynamo and, in my head, an absolute living treasure. If ever you get a chance to talk to someone, talk to Greg Brown, anybody there. He's, he's brilliant, but he's a bit of a hermit. Um, what he doesn't know about the reptiles at Fog Dam you just doesn't really need to be known. Anyway, they, they were working at Fog Dam, and I needed to work on, uh, uh, on water pythons. And I didn't want to tread on their toes. So I went to a place called Windows on the Wetlands and um, 
hopefully a few of your punters have heard of windows on the wetlands and I, I put transmitters in a whole heap of uh, water pythons there and, and children's pythons and um, I was able to, to let them all, all go. Now, we go back to Fog Dam. Fog Dam, according to Rick Shine and Tom Madsen, had the highest biomass, the highest density of biomass on the planet and it related to rats and pythons. It was it. You know, there was no answer. And they kept putting out these papers on water python biology and ecology, but never did they put one out that said water pythons and rats form the highest biomass on the planet at, you know, at this place called Fog Dam. And it was when I was working on my python, my water pythons over at, um, over at Windows on the Wetlands that I worked out why. Um, and the reason is that whilst there's a lot of rats, which is prey, and there's a lot of predators in water pythons that come and eat them, it's only at a certain time of the year. So whilst you've got this time of year when everything's happening and everything's eating and there's all these animals in the one spot, they don't stay there. They spread out across the floodplain. And so my pythons were moving up to 10 kilometres. Now, if you're looking at a home range of a python saying that it's got the highest biomass on the planet because it's there, it means it's always there, not here for a day and then gone for 364. It means it's always there. And so I called him on it and I said, guys, you know, come on, put out a paper that says something or I'm going to put my thesis, which says that water pythons are actually a, a, a latent elapid. They are an active, wide foraging animal that doesn't do what my other pythons do, which is just sit there and wait until something comes along and then go bang. You know, they actually go active seeking. And so when you look at the home range of an animal that's an active seeker, it is huge. And so water pythons, in my study, were the odd one out. Right. Got central carpet pythons, which had a home range of about five hectares. That's their home range. Um, Simpsons pythons was about two and a half. I'm just going off what I remember. Carpet pythons was about two and a quarter. Uh, children's pythons were a little bit more. They were about three and a half. And then you got to water pythons, and their home range was almost measured in kilometres. It was just huge. So, you know, you just got to be really careful with what you say and, and how you say it. So, um, that, that, that was what my, my research was on. So that was one, that there was a fallacy of, of some of the signs you were reading at, at Fog Dam. And the other one was one that hasn't been taken up, and that is that if you look at where pythons are found in Australia, so you've got um, you know, animals like... Oh, and pellies that have got a really small um, distribution. You've got ruffies and green trees that have got a small distribution. Then you've got some that have got a fairly big distribution, like the, the uh, inland carpet python um, or you know, the, the eastern carpet python, whatever. Even western carpet python is quite big, olive python. So th there's got to be something in there. And Pete, uh, Pete Harlow and, and Dave Slip, did a paper in 1988 on shivering thermogenesis in pythons. And it's pretty well known that pythons shiver. And, and that's great. So I wanted to find out whether they all shiver the same. What's your, th what's your thinking? Mm, probably uh, not. 
different areas. Yeah, yeah that's right. What Pete looked at and Dave Slip looked at were diamond pythons, which are a cold climate specialist. They are found where it's really cold and they deal with the cold. Oh, and Pellies are found in the tropics. Not only that, they're found down caves, which never change temperature of 32 degrees all year round. Just 32. Why would you need to shiver when it's 32? So I got all these pythons in and I started playing with their shivering. And I worked out that the things like diamond pythons, which could change the ambient temperature of their eggs to about, um, or substrate temperature of their eggs to by about four degrees. Central carpets, a big central carpet can change at about four degrees as well. Uh, I didn't ever have the inland carpets to be able to work with, but I looked at olive pythons and water pythons and stimpsons and carpets, and, um, children's and, and a few others, green trees, and yeah, played with a whole heap of them, black-headed pythons. And what I found was, there's a gradient. If you come from south and go north, the ability to raise the temperature um, is highest in the coldest latitudes. That's what you'd expect. And it reaches zero with animals that are in the high, high tropics, which you'd expect. But somewhere in there, the method of um, shivering changes too. Now, humans, if you go into uh, an icy lake and you come out, what do you do? You just start shivering and, and you shiver like a diamond python. You just, mammalian shivering is just continuous shivering. You're trying to raise your body temperature and your body involuntarily does it and you can't stop it, away it goes. Well, diamond pythons can control it, but that's what they do is they would mammalian shiver. When you get to water pythons and olive pythons and central carpet pythons, they don't do that. They don't shiver like we do. They shiver in pulses. So it's like that, bang, 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 bang. And they can do that for hours on end, that, that pulse shivering. You start thinking, well, why would they do that? So look at the distribution of olive pythons and water pythons. So you'll find they actually come down to the top of the desert. So there's a good chance that it's just an artifact of being able to go as low latitudinally as they possibly can to be able to warm their eggs enough to make them hatch and survive. Mm. So there we go, we've got pythons that from, from down south that shiver like we do, right through the animals that don't shiver, and somewhere in between you get a combination of the two, but they're two different types of shivering. shivering. So yeah. I, I, I always thought that was really interesting, but yeah, no yeah. one seems yeah. to have taken it up, so yeah, maybe it's just me, I'm just a weirdo. <laughs> Um, now, what is your favourite species that you've worked with uh, so far? Oh, if, that's like choosing kids, isn't it? Which is your favourite kid? I, I, I'm fascinated by everything. I, I, was, I was looking after Crocodiles Park uh, a few months ago, and I know Rodney's um, watching this, so g'day, Rodney. But um, I was looking after Crocodiles Park, and on one coconut tree, there were two skinks having a war with their tails. They were bashing the absolute bejesus out of each other by turning rear on and thumping their tails into each other. How can you not see that as exciting? How can you, and these are little cryptoblephrics, they're this big. How can you not be fascinated by something like that? Um, Mm. Then I started looking at how many of these cryptobiferous on every tree had broken tails. It's almost all of them. So they must be fighting all the time. 
So Australia is just this amazing land of predatory animals that fight to the death, but it's all in miniature. You know, old pellies are a big python, um, printies are a big goanna, and, and they're what people are attracted to in the first instance. But a guy called Brian Miller said to me, when you can look at little animals and get as much fascination out of them as you do the big stuff, you'll know you're a real herper. So Brian, I know you'll probably never watch this, but anyone that knows Brian Miller will know he's, he's a bit out there. Um, he was right. It, it, it is. It is a case of you'll see fascinating stuff happen with everything. And whether you keep it in a box um, or you go out and look at it in the wild, everything does something unusual. You know, I mentioned the shivering. So most people watching will breed pythons this year, but they'll immediately take the eggs off uh, the, the, the female and because and, that's just what we've always done. But what I'd say is anybody that's interested in just what they do do, leave them on their eggs for a little while. You don't have to take them off. They'll, they'll still incubate just as nicely in two weeks' time or four weeks' time as they will if you take them off immediately. So give them a go and you'll find that they do interesting stuff. Um, so Yeah, uh, choosing an animal. Uh, look, I love Iron Pellies. I'm a huge, my, my favourite uh, to look at python is a bredeleye. I just love looking at them. Oh, the interesting thing with them is that everybody that raves about different morphs in captivity, I've seen in wild animals. If you talk to Rex Neindorf, good mate of mine, Rexy, gay Rexy, um, in Alice Springs, he will, he will tell you that every morph, every colour, every variant that you have in captivity, you can find in the wild. Now, I caught probably three or four hundred bredeleye, uh, and I was seeing them every night, every night that I was working. Um, and they're just a beautiful animal. Just that, I, I think it was something about the psyche of, uh, you know, indigenous people, <laughs> central Australia, that red rock. It just gets in your hands. You can't get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as varanas go, Gladeye, I mentioned that. They're great. Uh, in terms of skinks, oh, any number of them. I think yeah. the, the beautiful Tenotus pulchellus from uh, the Barclay Tablelands is just something that's out of this world. Blue tailed skinks, you know, from Central Australia. Uh, I tried to get some of them for Croc Cove and put them in the enclosure with the beautiful red sand that they come from down around you know, um, Mount Connor. And of course, they're burrowers, so you never see them. Don't, don't you hate that? So, um, the little spiny tails, I love hosies, hosmer skinks, they're beautiful. Uh, geckos, dual velvet gecko, got a soft spot for them because while I was looking for arm pellies, of course, all I'd see is jeweled velvet geckos and, uh, and the northern knobtails. Knob they're, they're beautiful too. But in reality, everything fascinates me, Josh. And I get just yeah. as big a kick now as I did when I was you know, 12, just going out catching everything just because I could. Um, I guess I'm a kid that's just never going to grow up. I'm just going to die. Uh, yeah. And um, out of all of the animals that you've kept, what do you think has been the most difficult so far? Oh, every time I get a new one into captivity from the wild, I think that's it. Um, because I've had to work with Iron Pellies for so long, it would be them. Uh, you know, like I say, this is, a, in my head, this is a life's work. By the time I have written um, about Iron Pellies, which will be, you know, a book 
this thick, I hope. Um, there's a couple of people that have helped me. Gordo, uh, Wouter in, in, uh, in the Netherlands came out and we found one. Um, he's written his story about it. I'm trying to do a, a book that encompasses everybody that's, that's ever helped me um, and they will write their story in it. By the time I finish that, I'm hoping that anybody that wants an Owen Pelly can have one. Um, they're overseas, held in institutions, and bred in good numbers, and you know, the, the Aboriginal people are happy with how it's gone, and we've put the animals back. There's some kid working on them um, with transmitters involved in them, and, and, and we've done everything that that's, that whole story has wanted to tell. And then we can move, we can move, or I can move on personally, you know, yeah. like I say. Once the, the adults are back on country, once everybody's um, happy to do them, I would gladly hand over all, the, all that I've bred and, uh, and other people can work with them. But they are the hardest to deal with because we couldn't work out what they'd eat. They'd eat a bat. Um, they'd eat a bat, but, you know... Uh, it was it was really tough finding stuff. You know, I'd find dead bandicoots. We'd try them. Uh, I was working with one of the vets up here, and he would give me animals that he'd had bought in that would die, native animals, I mean. And we would try different uh, different wallabies. We'd try bandicoots. We'd try you name it. The different rats. The different uh, everything. We'd try everything. And the only thing that ever got them worked up, dead or alive was a native bird. So if someone bought in a Teresian pigeon that was dead or a, a red-collared lorikeet or something like, you know, uh, what are they called, peaceful dove, anything that was native would get smashed. But then you couldn't get anything else down as well because as, as soon as they smelt a rat, they'd smell a rat and they'd just spit it back out. So a few times I tried tying a, a, you know, a, a rat to a... Uh, the leg of a, a dead uh, lorikeet or whatever, and they'd, they'd start at the head, eat their way down until they got to the rat, and then go, no, they like that. And the other thing that, that was really frustrating is they might eat the lorikeet. You might have two lorikeets, so you might try the, uh, the old daisy chain with the, with the rat tied to it. And if I happen to move, because, of course, you're trying to put it in near their mouth, if I happen to move while they're trying to put, it, trying to get it down, I've already mentioned that they're very alert, very watchful animals. If I moved, they'd just spit it out, and I'd go months again trying to find something else that they'd eat. So they've been incredibly difficult to deal with. Luckily, the youngsters aren't like that. You know, the ones that are on rats, they are on rats. They're like a, a normal python that everybody knows. They just don't handle like everything else. So. Um, well, as I said, uh, I just saw there asking when the book's coming out. Um, I'm trying to get as much done as I can this year, so hopefully um, we'll, we'll get it somewhere near finished by, by next year. Uh, with luck, there's a couple of people who will help edit it. I know um, John McGrath has, has offered to do it. Uh, anybody that is on iHerp, the, the, the online magazine, will know who John McGrath is. He's one of Australia's great uh, people in that he's done something off his own back. And he's one of the people that we really need to support because without our online magazine, we can't get to everybody except by Facebook. And that's fine, but everybody's got their own little self-interest. 
if we are on Facebook, to get, uh, if we're on iHerb uh, together, we all get the same magazine, we all get to see how people are thinking by articles that are written in it. And not, you know, not everybody likes every article. I'm, I'm you know, sure I don't. You know, I tend to love Australian wildlife uh, and I don't, don't get that much of a jolly out of everything overseas. Um, maybe because I've never dealt with it. But, you know, I figure we've got 1,300 species here. Let's sort of work with them before we worry about what's overseas. But, but John is a venue that, that if we support, um, we'll be able to bring people together. So when we get to the idea of having a, uh, a, a lobby group, like I mentioned at the start, um, he can he can be the person that coordinates it, and or he wants to do that. But he, he would be the person that, that puts it out there so that we can coordinate it, and we need it. We yeah. definitely need yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. Um. I, yeah. You go. You go. I, I guess that was just the aside that, that uh, I, I think is is quite important. You know, we need to be a hurt community as opposed to just random people on Facebook talking about herbs. And I guess as, a, as an old grumpy person, I see that sort of being lost, that herb community. Years ago, you used to go to an expo or and even prior to that, you'd go to a herb group, you know. Um, the Hawkesbury Herb Society is probably the biggest in Australia now, but the Australian, Australian uh, Herb Society was a big one. Uh, the South Australian Herb Society, Vic Herbs, um, all of these were massive. Um, a number of years ago, and and what it did was build a herp community. Um, we've mm. sort of lost that. I don't know how to go back to it. I'm not that smart, but um, hopefully some people watching might know how we get the herp community back, the community engagement, as opposed to just being a whole heap of random herps that uh, have their own self-interest on Facebook posts. And you know, in in my head, Josh, I'm going. Mate, this is a great venue, but what do you do? What do you do? What, what reptiles do you keep? What reptiles do you like looking at? You know, so part of this engagement that you're doing is also a reciprocal arrangement. Other people want to know what you do. And yeah, I think yeah. um, as you go, you can become that, that, um, that glue that binds part of the, the, the herp community. Yeah. Hopefully that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, all right, so you wanted to do your thing with the uh, albino olives. Go ahead. Okay. I'll give it up to you now. Okay. Well, I, d I don't actually have any. I've got, a lot, I've got a lot that are breeding at the moment, so I've got my fingers crossed that I'll end up with a couple. But what I'm after is a, a bit of information. I mentioned it on, uh, on Steve and Adrian's podcast as well. I've spent <clears throat> the last... It's a, uh, a reusable cup. You'll know that. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you a reusable cup. I have spent the last three and a half years working on a system. That's what I'm good at, working on systems, where I can connect everybody that has a reusable cup with a cafe, with each other, and make it so that you still get your discount, you still get rewards for it, you still get everything, as do the cafe. But what I've seen in the recycle world, or the reusable world, or the connecting world per se, since since Facebook and, and, and the big social platforms that we have now, 
is it's becoming smaller. I just mentioned about the herb community being fragmented and, and broken up, and that's what's happening right across the board. I need to find someone that I can show this system vision to that can get this cup system. It's not the cup. It's the system that will bind everybody done in a way big enough that everybody can participate. Because if I, if I build it, the app myself and I upload it and everybody in Darwin goes, that's a really good idea, let's all join this. Um, the next town, Sydney will do it. Melbourne will do it. Los Angeles will do it. France, you know, Paris will do it. London will do it. It becomes disconnected and a whole heap of little people. What I want is this to go global. Now, I'm not out to be rich and shameless. I don't really care about that. Um, what I care about is mitigating waste on the planet. And if everybody's connected because they all have a system that allows them to get their coffee in their own cup um, and they are part of a brotherhood, if you like, they're all doing something for the planet. They're stopping going and getting another wasted coffee cup, you know, a throwaway. So I need to find someone that is in that big end of town. Now, I'm hoping Qantas might come back to me um, because they actually have an environmental sector that can do stuff like this. But I'm hoping that there's someone out there that might be able to connect me with someone in the big end of town. And if they're prepared to do that, I'll give them a pair of unrelated albino olive pythons as soon as I breed them, um, uh, or money to the equivalent if I, if I can get it uh, if I can get it happening. But I think um, I've seen too many things become fragmented, and I know what I've got is really something special. Um, I guess every every inventor says that I've been inventing stuff since I was a kid. Um, this one I. I just can't get out of my head for three and a half years. I know I'm sitting on a system that works. I just don't quite know how to find the right person that I can say, here's how it works. And they go, well, I have the skills, the contacts, the capital and the ability to get this app made and make it go global. I guess there's no guarantees in anything, but that's the sort of person I'm after. So if anyone does know someone, please PM me or send me an email on ccherps at iinet.net.au um, and, uh, and you know, if, if you're the person that gives me the contact, I would 100% give, give you these critters. Um, so that's pretty much it, you know. Um, what's, what's the weather like where you're at, Josh? Um, it's been raining. That's about it, really, a bit cold. Let me show you the temperature. This is the this is the room I'm in at the moment. I don't know if you can can you see that? Yeah. yeah. Is it 29.29.8? degrees. It is still in Darwin. Goes to show I don't need to heat reptile rooms, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be some benefits to living in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. But um, I think that's about it. That's all of my questions. Um, so yeah, people, sure. you heard Gavin there. That's that's what you got to do. So get into it. Yeah, don't be old and grumpy like me. Take take, <laughs> take the government by the scruff of the neck and and make them say yes. That's what you want. You want them to say yes. Thanks, Josh. Really appreciate it.
No worries. Thank you. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed. And um, that's another one down. Thank you very much. Um, have a good night, everyone. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that interview. As I said, that was a few years ago uh, with myself and Dr. Gavin Bedford. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation and re-listening to it brings back a, a bunch of different memories. Um, thank you once again to uh, Gavin for taking time out of his day for that interview. I'm sure we'll have to do one uh, now that it's been a few years down the track to get an update on everything that's going on on his end of things. Um, but hopefully you enjoyed that little snippet of the past um, and will enjoy this oncoming series. As I said, there's about maybe five or ten episodes, something around that. Um, of this older content that we'll be progressively putting up over time as well. Um, otherwise, if you want to see more of myself and Dane, obviously give the podcast a follow and all of that sort of bits and pieces. Uh, you can find Dane at Blue Horizon Reptiles on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're after me, it's Josh's Aussie Reptiles. Uh, there's YouTube stuff. There's uh, Facebook, Instagram stuff as well, uh, and a website out there too. Uh, as I said, hope you enjoyed. Hope you're all keeping safe in these uh, weird times that we're in uh, and hope this brings a bit of joy for you. Thanks. Bye.